Perceptions Podcast. Well, I'm um, walking along noisy Castle Ray Street in the centre of Sydney, and um, I'm arriving at the Great Synagogue of Sydney to talk to Rabbi Elton, the Chief Rabbi. Uh, it's a beautiful old building, um, right in the centre, not far from St Mary's Catholic Cathedral and St Andrew's Anglican Cathedral, but tucked away here in Castle Ray Street. It was built in the 1870s. Okay, Great Synagogue Press to speak to the office. Okay. The Great Synagogue in Sydney truly is a wonderful building. We'll go inside later. But I'm not here to admire the architecture. I'm looking for some ancient wisdom on a much-needed theme. In the Torah, the great Jewish law, we find the genesis, literally the genesis, of the concept of the weekly day off. The seven-day creation story in Bereshit, what Christians call the book of Genesis, has a penultimate ending and an ultimate ending. At the end of chapter one, we read, God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. Honestly, there's a whole show in that line because there's a whole worldview right there. Created matter is not accidental, capricious, meaningless. It is tov ma'ud, very good. But that's not this episode. The real conclusion to the creation story is actually in the next lines at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. The inclusion of a rest day after creation underlines a key principle that ancient Jews understood from the very beginning, but is only now being verified by scientists. Rest is the partner of work. Rest and work, work and rest complement and complete each other. Now, at one level, you might have thought we were experts at rest and recreation and their interplay with work. After all, we have more free time on our hands than our forebears did. The Oxford Martin Program on Global Development at Oxford University found that among the countries that industrialised early, like the US, UK, Australia, Germany and France, working hours have actually decreased dramatically over the last 150 years. Astonishingly, people in 1870 in these countries did as many hours of work between January and July as we do now in a whole year. They could have taken five months off and still worked as many hours as we do now. The fact is, most of us today have more time off, more time for leisure and creativity than ever before. But we're actually not that good at rest. A Deloitte survey found that many of us have an always-on work mentality and work culture, and that this has resulted in over two-thirds of us saying we've experienced burnout, and more than half of us say we've experienced it more than once. So we're in the best position ever to appreciate rest, but somehow we're terrible at it. 
So, what if we rededicated ourselves to the ancient wisdom of rest? Rest not understood as the mere absence of work, but rest as the rejuvenating partner to work. What would our lives look like? How would it feel? What impact would it have? Content warning, my friends. This episode could change your life. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, Ethics Beyond Rules, by Keith D. Stanglin. Each episode, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. In his 2008 book, Outliers, the best-selling author and social commentator Malcolm Gladwell makes the case for what he calls the 10,000-hour rule for greatness. The rule was based on a major study published in the Psychological Review of students at Berlin's elite Academy of Music. The study found that the key ingredient separating virtuoso musicians from the merely brilliant wasn't native talent, but the number of hours they practiced over the years. Virtuosity was the result of 10,000 hours of work. Gladwell found that the same principle operates among elite chess players, top sportsmen and women, and even computer geniuses like Bill Gates. Raw talent is important, of course. Long, hard work is the key. 10,000 hours, he said, is the magic number of greatness. But there's an aspect of the original study that Gladwell didn't mention. It's true that virtuosos practised more than most, but they had another secret ingredient. They rested more, and more deliberately. On average, these virtuosos slept an hour a day more than the others, which they mostly achieved through daytime naps. And they were more deliberate in their rest. They consciously set aside an average of 25 hours a week for meaningful downtime. That's more than three hours a day. As one well-known expert writes of the so-called 10,000-hour rule, quote, Those who research world-class performance focus only on what students do in the gym or track or practice room. This is how we've come to believe that world-class performance comes after 10,000 hours of practice. But that's wrong. It comes after 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, 12,500 hours of deliberate rest, and 30,000 hours of sleep. Those are the words of my wonderful guest today, Dr. Alex Pang. There is a deep history of respect for rest throughout human history. And I think what, you know, part of what I'm trying to do with this book is to reconnect people to it, to update it a little bit, but to say that this may sound like sort of old stuff, but it's, you know, it's really old wisdom. 
Alex Sugyung Kim Pang has a PhD in the history of science from the University of Pennsylvania and is a visiting scholar at Stanford University. He's the author of several books, including the one I'm particularly interested in today, simply titled Rest. Well, um, Alex, thank you so much. I um, I loved your book. I'm sure you get that all the time. It's one of those books I put in the um, life-changing category. So it's a real pleasure that I get to speak to you. Um, let's just dive Yeah, in. I'm uh, a big fan. Today, I think you'll see why Pang's book changed my life. Almost. Let's just dive in and, uh, you know, start with the obvious question. Uh, what do you mean by rest? I mean, it's not just knocking off by 5pm and watching Netflix with a glass of wine. What I mean when I talk about rest is any activity that recharges the mental and physical batteries that we spend working. And an important part of that is that rest is not just passive, right? Sort of, we tend to think of rest as sort of doing as little as possible. But in fact, you know, it's often the case that the forms of rest that, that sort of provide us with the most kind of spiritual or physical nourishment are actually active rather than passive. They can be sometimes challenging, either physically or, or, or mentally, and they're often very engaging. And I think that recognizing that is important for, sort of, uh, for figuring out how we can rest better in our own lives and make choices that serve us well for our entire lives. You insist that work and rest are not opposites. They're not even competitors. What's your argument? So, you know, we think these days of sort of rest almost as a sort of negative space defined by the absence of work rather than its own thing. And this is actually a rather new concept, right? You know, Aristotle talked about, you know, sort of work as a sort of drudgery and leisure as the place in which you know, humans could flourish. Um, and so the argument that I make in rest is that we should see work and rest as partners, you know, as, as two parts of our lives that complement and really complete each other. That even for those of us who love our work, rest is essential for making it possible to do that work well, for drawing as much meaning from it as possible, and for doing it as long as we can throughout our lives. Many of us have the sense that, um, that we have some obligation to earn our rest, but learning to work well creates more space for resting well, and thus allows us to make for a better relationship between the two of them. I hope we'll uh, convince our listeners of that uh, by the end of uh, this interview. But can you tell me about some of the greats of work and rest. Uh, perhaps something about Charles Darwin and his friend down the road, John Lubbock, and any others that stand out to you, because I was very struck by what you wrote. Sure. Darwin, in his 40s, retreated to a country estate in you know, a village in the sort of English countryside where he wrote um, The Origin of Species, The Descent of Man, really, you know, would have changed the world from this little uh, from this little you know corner of rural England, and when you look, Darwin's life is very well documented thanks to tens of thousands of letters that sort of were saved, and what we find in his daily schedule is that you know Darwin would start work very early. He was an early riser, 
And he would, after a you know, walk in the morning, go into a study and, and work for about four or five hours a day until lunch. And then he would declare himself done and then go out to a path sort of near his, near his estate that was mainly on his ground, but also on some land that was sort of leased from his neighbor, John Lubbock. And he would spend literally several hours out there every day walking, thinking about what he had just written, sometimes coming up with new ideas that he would jot down and then or of save for the next day. And so, you know, any person, I think any, you know, academic dean today who saw a junior professor working those kinds of hours would think this person is never going to get anything done, right? However, working in this way very steadily, almost day in, day out for decades, you know, Darwin changed how we see the world, how we think about natural processes, and helped kind of set the table for the development of modern science. His neighbor, John Lubbock, was a banker, Perhaps more than a banker, Baron Charles Lubbock was also a British member of Parliament, a philanthropist, scientist and polymath. He made significant contributions to the sciences of archaeology, ethnography and biology, and he coined the terms Paleolithic and Neolithic to describe the Old and New Stone Ages. Back to Alex. He was, um, you know, he was, uh, he was an innovator in finance, but he also was you know, one of these great amateur naturalists. He was an archaeologist who saved the stone monuments at Avebury by just buying them um, and saving them from developers. But he was also the guy behind bank holidays. You know, the idea that you could have secular holidays that, uh, that simply gave workers a rest and they came, and which in his honor were known for a long time as St. Lubbock's Days. So... Sorry to interrupt again, but John Lubbock really was quite something. On top of everything else, he somehow managed to publish 29 books. Darwin was rightly in awe of his more God-bothering neighbour. We know Lubbock's day started at 6.30am with morning prayer. He was a keen Anglican. He went for a horse ride, had breakfast, and then worked in 30-minute bursts on and off until the afternoon, when he took two hours off to enjoy the outdoors. Evenings were filled with meals, friends, and letter writing. The two of them working in very different realms and as very different people. Darwin was very much an introvert. Lubbock was, uh, he was a politician. He was very easygoing with people. Um, You know, each of them in their own lives, in their own ways, demonstrate the way in which rest can play, you know, a great role in helping us be the best versions of ourselves and doing the kind of work and living the kinds of lives that we're put on this earth to live. This isn't just anecdotal. One study of mid-20th century scientists found an M-shaped curve when it came to the extent of their research output. Okay, so picture the letter M. The scientists who published most were only in the lab or office for 20 hours a week. Those who worked for 35 hours dipped well below the 20-hour scientists. And those who put in 50 hours beat the 35-hour scientists, but they never caught up to the 20-hour scientists. The take-home from all this? 
Well, working 20 hours with regular intervals for rest can be more effective than working more than double that amount of time. It's so weird and a little bit wonderful. A major part of your book is that there's a science of rest. In broad terms, what is the science of rest saying about its importance? Sure. So, you know, if you look at longitudinal studies of, you know, thousands and thousands of people over the course of decades, whether it's, you know, people living in one town in America or British civil servants or sort of other big populations, you find that uh, people who have hobbies, who take regular vacations, who are kind of more mindful of their leisure and actually make use of it, tend to go farther in their careers, live longer, they age more gracefully, um, they're less likely to have chronic illnesses, and they have generally self-reported happier, healthier lives than people who are constant workaholics. So, you know, at one level, simply doing the kinds of things that we all sort of know we should do more of sort of can help us, uh, can help us have better lives. However, for those of us who make a living as creatives, it turns out that neuroscientists and psychologists of creativity have started to kind of pick the lock on what goes on in the brain when we have new insights, when we sort of finally, you know, after working on problems, have those aha moments that are sort of both so wonderful and, you know, all too elusive for, for many of us. And what they find is that the space in which we have those insights is often space in which we have worked hard on problems, but then we've stopped. And We've taken a rest. We've gone, you know, on a long walk as Darwin did regularly, um, or done other kinds of things that are apparently unproductive, quote unquote. But in fact, are giving our creative subconscious time to turn over unsolved problems, to try out different kinds of solutions, and as often as not, to come up with to come up with something, a new angle to a problem, an answer to sort of a challenge that has eluded our conscious solution. And what we're learning is that, in a sense, you can design your days by layering periods of deep focused work and what I call in the book deliberate rest in ways that kind of nudge, nudge the subconscious along and give it space in which to work its magic. And so what has for a long time been a wonderful but mysterious process is one that we are beginning to understand a little bit better. The ancient world has a pretty patchy record when it comes to rest. There were certain days in pagan calendars when some forms of work were forbidden. Hesiod, a Greek writer around 700 BC, tells us that people shouldn't sow seed on the 13th day of the lunar cycle or plant crops on the 16th day. Various kinds of legal work were forbidden on unlucky days in the Greco-Roman calendar. This wasn't to give poor lawyers some time off, it was to do with superstition. The unfortunate fact of the ancient world is that elites worked as little as they could and peasants worked all day, every day, week in and week out. Many of the rich saw work, especially work with your hands, as beneath them. And I suppose the poor just accepted work as their lot in a restless world. What will you do with your time? I've got a job in Ripon. 
I said I'll start tomorrow. A job? You do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Oh, don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And of course I'll have the weekend. What, what is a weekend? And it was still true at the beginning of the 20th century, according to the Dowager Countess of Grantham, played by the wonderful Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey, one of the very rare TV shows that all the Underceptions team have actually seen and loved. Anyway, it wasn't until ancient Near Eastern and Mediterranean cultures came into contact with Jewish society that a new approach to rest began to emerge, which takes us back to the Great Synagogue. Oh, look, lovely to meet you, uh, John Dixon. Thank you so much for your time. I've loved the opening up. I mean, you are only my second in-person interview in a year. I'm guided into the Great Synagogue by the very man I'm keen to speak to. Rabbi Dr. Benjamin Elton has been Chief Minister of the Great Synagogue since 2015. He earned an MA in History at Queen's College, Cambridge, and a PhD in Jewish History from the University of London. He also studied for four years at a Torah rabbinical school in New York. And he presides over one of the most beautiful buildings in Sydney. Oh, wow. Well, this is gorgeous. I don't know, I'm gonna take a guess. Maybe 600 could sit in here, crushed in. How many um, would this seat at full capacity? 11, 1100, double what I just thought. 500 down and, oh my. Before I ask you specifically about rest or the Sabbath, um, can you tell us about the Jewish idea of work? Um, Because listeners may be um, interested to learn, Judaism has a very, an elevated view of work. That's right. It says that God labored for six days. He rested on the seventh, but he also worked for six. And the ancient rabbis all had professions. Some were landowners and men of means, but many, were uh, undertook often very humble professions, uh, tanning and charcoal burning and so on and so forth. And there is great dignity in labor. Um, Maimonides, the great uh, philosopher and jurist of the medieval period, tells us that one should not live off charity, if that's at all possible. You should work and study Torah in your leisure time, um, rather than be a a burden on on others, uh, principally so we can support those who really can't support themselves. But uh, the, the concept that, that labour has its own dignity is very deeply entrenched in the Jewish thought. Okay, so let's turn to the Sabbath law, and I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to read for us in Hebrew um, the command from the Ten Commandments, um, Deuteronomy or Hadavarim, um, if you'd give us the, the actual words. Yes, of course. Shamor et Yom HaShabbat Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox. Okay, so we all heard a couple of times the word Shabbat. (laughs) So what does it mean? What is its sort of root etymology and then its connotation? 
Shabbat means rest, that God rested and therefore we also rest. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, a day which is built up on two primary pillars. The first is creation, that God rested on the seventh day, but also there is the concept of the exodus, of the redemption and the liberation. Which is what you just read there. Indeed. Yeah. Um, slaves can't rest. Mm. Uh, slaves have no control over their time. Mm. Uh, we rest on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, to indicate both that God rested at the end of the creation, but also that we were given the ability to rest when God took us from Egypt and, uh, and liberated us from slavery. Well, that might be theologically clear, but historically, Shabbat, the Sabbath day of rest, is a bit of a mystery. After decades of research, specialists haven't been able to find any precedent or parallel that might have prompted the ancient Jews to propose a day off every seven days. This sometimes disturbs historians because we love precedent and parallel. But here, it really looks like the ancient Jews invented the weekend. What do you make of that historical oddity, you know, that the Jewish people invented this notion of regular rest? How do you account for that? Well, the Romans thought the Jews were very lazy because they rested every seven days and they couldn't understand it. Now, the Romans did have holy days which were dotted around, but there was no regular day. Uh, and I think uh, this is one of the uh, Jewish contributions to, to the world. Uh, but also, I believe as a rabbi, as an Orthodox rabbi, this is one of the signs of the divinity uh, and the um, sanctity of our tradition. This is not a Jewish concept, this is a, a, a concept of God, that God brought into the world through the Jewish people. And uh, he wants us, and I think he wants the whole world, to stop every seven days and to think about God and to think about the purposes of life. Uh, and uh, the Jewish people are the conduit for bringing this divine concept into the world. Yeah, so in a sense, this is, this is how Abraham blesses the nations, am I right? Like, part of that thought, that the, right. the gift of the Torah, the wisdom of God uh, for all people. That's right. Uh, That's God from Genesis, or Bereshit, chapter 12. God promised Abraham, the first Jew, we might say, that he would become a great nation, Israel, and that this nation would somehow bless all the nations. Abraham is intended to be a source of blessing for the entire world, for all peoples. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the idea of, of rest is very much part of that. In antiquity, you know, elites worked as little as they possibly could, certainly avoided working with their hands. And of course, the, the peasantry and slaves worked all the time, apart from a, a, you know, one or two Roman holidays that they, even the slaves got. But am I right that the text you just read out says, nope, this is for everyone. This is an egalitarian law. That's right, it's for your servant and your maidservant and your donkey and the stranger in your game. So the animals get to rest too. That's right, everyone gets to rest. Mm. Um, and uh, even the non-Jewish stranger who lives in your community, who's visiting or is a resident but hasn't become a Jew, an, Ezra an Israelite, they also have to be able to rest. Eventually, the Sabbath day began to catch on in the ancient world. By the first century, more than a millennium after Moses, Greeks and Romans, some of them anyway, began to borrow aspects of the Jewish day off. The Jewish historian Josephus, an aristocrat living in Rome in the 80s and 90s AD, wrote these words. 
The masses have long since shown a keen desire to adopt our religious observances, and there is not one city, Greek or barbarian, nor a single nation to which our custom of abstaining from work on the seventh day has not spread. Now, Josephus is exaggerating. He does that quite a bit. We know that plenty of people and cities ignored Jewish customs, but there is something to what he says. Greeks and Romans by this period were slowly adopting this Jewish day of rest. And of course, that only increased with the rise of Christianity. With the partial conversion of Rome to Christianity in the 4th century, Emperor Constantine mandated a weekly day off, based on the Jewish model, in a law of the summer of AD 321. The law made Sunday the day off, rather than the Jewish Saturday, partly because that was the day that marked Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday, and partly because Constantine wanted to make it easier for people to go to church. It's hard for us to imagine all these years later, but church services in the early centuries, which were always on Sunday, had to be super early in the day because Sunday was just the first day of the working week. People had to head to church, you know, while it was still dark, and then they could go to their work day. Constantine didn't force citizens to go to church, but he certainly made it easier for them to do so. In any case, the summer of 321 must have been wonderful for those who'd never known a regular day off. We owe the Western idea of a weekend to Moses and Constantine. We're working on a whole episode on the life and legacy of Constantine, by the way, so stay tuned for that. But is the Sabbath rest mandated? Obviously, it is in Orthodox Judaism, but what about the broader Christian tradition in the West? It's a really thorny question for after the break. This episode is sponsored by Zondervan's new book, Ethics Beyond Rules, How Christ's Call to Love Informs Our Moral Choices, by Keith D. Stanglin. We've talked quite a bit this season about how we should live, ethics, morality, what makes the good life. Well, Keith Stanglin's book fits right into that theme, asking how we approach today's difficult moral questions from the starting point of love. Instead of a big list of rules, Stanglin offers a framework for how to start thinking about the big issues of our time, like sexual ethics, consumerism, technology, politics, and so on. The framework is basically, what does Christian love require? Stanglin helps us to go deeper on all this. Why do we believe what we believe? And what does that mean for how we live in the world? Theology, says Stanglin, should never be an end in itself. It should lead to myriad ethical questions and ultimately to an ethical life. Not characterised by rules, but by love. Whether you're a believer or a doubter, if you want to know how Christianity navigates today's moral complexities without becoming legalistic, then this is a book for you. Get Ethics Beyond Rules by Keith D. Stanglin on Amazon, of course, or head to Zondervan.com for more. (music) 
There are over 3 million people living in slavery in Pakistan. The practice of bonded slavery is widespread. When families borrow money from their employer to pay for essentials, often in times of crisis, and then they spend years, sometimes decades, paying it off by working as a slave. Brick kilns are the primary place you'll find these indebted families in Pakistan, caked in mud and working for as little as $4 a day. 70% of the bonded labourers in Pakistan are children. Anglican Aid is trying to break this cycle of poverty in Pakistan, helping families who have spent generations in bonded labour to break free. This Christmas, they have partnered with Miracle School Ministries in Lahore, the capital of Pakistan's Punjab province, to offer free quality education to 800 children enslaved in the local brick kiln. Miracle has set up a sewing facility to provide alternative employment for women in particular, increasing how much they can earn and teaching a marketable skill that might see their families get out of the brick kilns for good. This Christmas, please consider these guys I trust, Anglican Aid, as they continue to work to establish long-term assistance for women and their families. Just go to anglicanaid.org.au, anglicanaid.org. .org.au to give today. Your friend Ilam has a withered hand. Are you a healer? It is not lawful to heal on Sabbath. Which one of you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Who are you to speak to our congregation in such a of way? How much more value? Is this man than a shop this at once? Come here. Come stand here. Is it lawful on Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? This affliction does not threaten his life. It does not even affect his health. That's a scene from the crowdfunded series The Chosen which tracks the life of Jesus in a pretty faithful way, actually, with some obvious dramatic embellishments. My friends have been bugging me to watch it for ages, but that's the only bit I've seen. And I feel like saying that the clash between Jesus and the Pharisees depicted there is real, but I hope listeners, especially Jewish listeners, don't hear this as anti-Jewish per se. I'm going to say more about the broader Christian view of the Sabbath later, but it's clear to anyone who reads the Gospels that Jesus was a devout Jew of a particular kind and that he clashed with some Pharisees on the particularities of the Sabbath. This is definitely one of those areas where Jesus' reading of the Torah was more lax, we might say, than that of the ancient Pharisees or Orthodox Judaism today. Jesus didn't reject the Sabbath commandment, but he did insist it wasn't meant to be a duty hanging over us. It's more God's wisdom for our benefit rather than a legal obligation toward God. The Sabbath was made for humans, he said not the other way around. More on that in a moment. For now, it's worth just noting that there's a lot of research over the last few decades underlining just how beneficial rest is for human flourishing. And that's something Jews, Christians and skeptics can all agree on. One of the best ways to benefit from rest is to exercise. Yep, exertion can be restful. I thought I'd give Director Mark a mission just because I love him. Read out to us some of Dr Pang's research findings while on a treadmill. Thanks, John. 
Well, basically, the data begins by challenging the idea that intellectual ability and athletic ability are mutually exclusive. So the Danish physicist Niels Bohrs and his mathematician brother Harold were both nationally ranked soccer players. And Mary Curie, who shared the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1903, also won her own prize for chemistry in 1911, was an avid cyclist. And even Albert Einstein went hiking in the Alps. And basically the list goes on. Studies of the effects of fitness on programs on the brain and general health have shown that exercise improves brain structure just as it does cardiovascular systems and muscles. In a 2015 German and Finnish study, before and after brain scans of overweight and obese subjects showed dramatic improvement in the volume of grey matter and white matter over the course of a three-month fitness and weight loss program. And exercise doesn't just make your brain healthier by reducing cholesterol or improving cardiovascular capacity, but exercise actually induces profound structural brain plasticity. So scientists have also found that mice running on wheels, which is kind of how I feel right now, uh, generate twice the number of new neurons in the hippocampus as mice who are sedentary. These studies and others like them help explain how scientists, writers, painters and architects managed to stay productive decades after the competition has burned out. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go take my own mental break. If physical exhaustion is one way of achieving restorative rest, it shouldn't surprise us that sleep also plays a role. The Oxford Very Short Introduction to Sleep, written by the sleep scientists Stephen Lockley and Russell Foster, summarises the multiple lines of evidence we have that more quality sleep predicts better moods, better memory, greater productivity and enhanced health. But exercise and sleep are just two of the ways rest provides a benefit. You have some interesting thoughts on vacations, or or what Aussies call holidays. Um, Many of us work hard all year, saving up for our three or four week holiday. Um, But you say that might not be the best approach. You know, I think that the only, first off, the only bad vacation you take, you know, is the one that you don't take. So, you know, and school schedules and stuff being what they are, you take what vacations you can. But If you were to take a really scientific approach to vacations, you might ask, how long do I have to be on vacation to really get recharged? And then how long does that recharge last, right? If the idea is to maximize uh, sort of restorativeness. And in that case, what you would do is take a vacation of about seven to 10 days every three months, because happiness on vacation peaks roughly around day seven or day eight. So after two weeks, you're not twice as happy as you are after sort of week one. And the benefits of a vacation last roughly three months or so. And so if you could get that kind of cycle going, then you really would, you know, you would be, you'd be maximizing your own happiness. And indeed, this is what people apparently, you know, um, rich people with, you know, who can design their time um, tend to do, actually. They take they take more 
more vacations of shorter duration in order to kind of get that uh, get that more continual recharge. You're, um, I just want to emphasize that you're not talking about switching off. True rest can and should be mentally absorbing, you say. Winston Churchill, for example, who <laughs> I think we can all agree worked pretty hard, um, mm -hmm. relaxed by painting, actually mm -hmm. painting. Now, for an exhausted person listening in, um, doesn't that sound like more work? Well, you know, I think if you're, um, uh, you know, Churchill's defense was that for people who kind of, uh, you know, who are obsessed with their work, who run on nervous energy, who face a lot of stresses at work, it's not enough to tell them just, you know, switch off. Um, they're much more likely, as I think we've all had the experience of, you know, when you try to rest, having your mind go back to, you know, go back to sort of problems at the office or, or, or things you're working on. And so what he advocated was that you need a change as opposed to nothing at all. And you need something that, that in a sense is equally absorbing as your work, but which is quite different from it. And that exercising this different part of your brain will sort of, it, you know, will allow you to not only, you know, not only give you a you know sort of give you actually give your brain rest or give the parts that you're exercising at you know sort of in parliament or sort of running a war a break but you know it's also an opportunity sort of to you know develop new skills and to kind of cultivate the sort of breadth that is important for people you know who have long lives and long careers Ride like you're running out of time Right day and night like you're running out of time Every day you fight like you're running out of time Like you're running out of time Are you running out of time? How do you ride like tomorrow won't arrive? How do you ride like you needed to survive? How do you ride every second you're alive? Every second you're alive? Every second you're alive? Hamilton has won 11 Tony Awards, a Pulitzer Prize for drama, a Grammy for best musical theatre album, and a swag of other awards too numerous to list here. My daughter and I have seen it twice. It's awesome. And it all came about when its creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, decided to take a break. I mean, he, he at one level is the epitome of the hard-working musician. His musical output is extraordinary. But that's not how Hamilton came to him. No. You know, Miranda really is a dynamo. Um, but, you know, the the initial impetus for Hamilton came when he finally, after seven years of working on and performing his first musical in the Heights, you know, was convinced, he says, by his spouse to finally sort of take a, you know, take a vacation. And they went to a resort and he threw in a copy of Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton. And he said later that, as soon as I gave my mind a break from In the Heights, Hamilton jumped into it. And it was on that vacation, reading this biography, that he started to think that the first seeds are planted for what turns into, I think, one of the most spectacular creative accomplishments probably of the last 50 years. But finding time for creative, restorative rest can be pretty hard when you're in a job you just feel is too important to put aside. I'm sure this is true for doctors, nurses, academics, activists. It's even true for clergy. I was surprised to learn that the term workaholic, 
uh, was first coined in a study of Christian clergy uh, back in 1971. Um, I'm bound to have a lot of Christian clergy listening to this um, interview. I would have thought religious types were the first to be into rest. I mean, in in the book, <laughs> it says <laughs> take rest. Have you got any theories about why, you know, even clergy might be prone to workaholism and burnout? That wonderful book, Confessions of a Workaholic, made the argument that any profession that sees itself to some degree as a calling, right, sort of something in which that is an important part of your identity as well as a means to a living and which has not just an important social component to it, perhaps. This is work that people tend to invest themselves very heavily in. It's also work that tends not to have clear endpoints. Mm. There's always more that you can do, right? You know, sort of one more life that you can save either as a, you know, as a doctor or, you know, or, 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 or clergyman or death row lawyer. And so it's very difficult to set boundaries, to keep them and to and it's very easy to see the sacrifice of your own health and your own self as having a kind of nobility given the kind of work that you do. And the logic of your your book and the the science that is there would actually say, in reality, you will do more good by stopping rejuvenating uh, um, be- before you go back out to, to serve. It's funny how that logic doesn't hit us. <laughs> no, no, it is, it is very easy to deny in the moment or to not recognize in the moment. But, you know, the challenge that we have is, you know, this is work that, you know, very often this is work that we really love when it goes well and we want it to go well. But we have to ask ourselves, is this work that we should sacrifice ourselves for so that we burn out by the time we're in our 40s? Or will we do more good for more people if we pace ourselves so that we can do this for decades and decades rather than just 20 years? Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. Jesus and his band of disciples were once accused of breaking the Sabbath commandment when his entourage picked some grain in a field on a Saturday. According to the interpretation of the Torah offered by the Pharisees, a conservative renewal movement, this picking grain constituted farm work. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Then he, Jesus, said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There was a spectrum of views on what constitutes work on the Sabbath. Not everyone in Jesus' day thought that picking grain on a Saturday broke the commandment, just as not every Jew today follows the Orthodox Jewish practice in Israel of not pressing the button of a hotel lift on the Sabbath. Hotel lifts in Israel automatically go up and down to every floor between Friday sundown and Saturday sundown. Anyway, it's fascinating that Jesus didn't criticize the Pharisees for having too strict a definition of what constituted work. I mean, he could have said, picking grain for a snack isn't work. Instead, he says the Pharisees have missed the very point of the Sabbath itself. For him, the fourth commandment isn't so much about humanity's obligation to God. It's mainly God's good gift to humanity, the Sabbath 
was made for man, he says, not man for the Sabbath. Rest from work was never meant to be a weight around our neck. It was a divine provision for those already weighed down by the toils of the world. That was Jesus' perspective, and it shaped the West. This reframing of the Sabbath sets the trajectory for the more relaxed approach, no pun intended, of the wider New Testament teaching on Sabbath-keeping. On the one hand, there are numerous hints in the New Testament that the first believers kept the Jewish Sabbath, at least in broad terms. The first Christians, after all, were all Jews. The disciples, for example, rested on the Saturday between Jesus' crucifixion and the discovery of the empty tomb. That's in Luke 23. A certain distance within the suburbs of Jerusalem is described in Acts chapter 1 as a Sabbath day's walk a reference to the short travel distance permissible on the Jewish day of rest. And the Apostle Paul affirms the Christian believer who considers one day more sacred than another. That's a quote from Romans 14. So Sabbath is definitely there in the New Testament. But there's another story. At least two passages make clear that Christians shouldn't judge one another if one of them chose not to keep the day of rest. In Romans 14, as I just mentioned, Paul defends the believer who sees the Sabbath day as more sacred than other days, but then he immediately defends the Christian who doesn't. He says, One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. That's Romans 14, verse 5. In another context, Paul explicitly forbids looking down on someone over the issue of Sabbath keeping. In his letter to the Colossians, we read, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, a reference to Jewish food laws, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. That's Colossians chapter 2. Sabbath isn't a moral principle to obey or disobey. It's God's wise gift to us. And it's particularly interesting that Paul describes it as a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is in Christ. The Sabbath, in other words, points forward to something. So what? Well, earlier in the episode, Rabbi Elton mentioned that in the book of Deuteronomy, the rationale for the Sabbath is that God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses said, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So rest from work somehow relates to God's salvation. This is where the Christian tradition picked up a Jewish ball and ran with it. Sabbath in the New Testament is mostly a sign of salvation. Leaving the toil of the working week for a period of joyful relaxation is a picture of God's deliverance from sins, from our failed efforts to do God's work in the world. Now, there's a really complex passage in the New Testament book of Hebrews where the writer describes Israel's deliverance from Egypt and entry into the promised land as Sabbath rest. But then he compares this Sabbath with the ultimate Sabbath of entering God's kingdom. 
I'll get producer Kaylee to read this passage. Don't worry about the details, just follow the main point. Thanks, Kaylee. We who have believed enter that rest. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest. Hebrews chapter 4. Well read. As I say, the passage is complicated, but all I want us to note is that Sabbath is a picture of resting in God's salvation. Christians have differed among themselves about whether we're obliged to take a day off every week. Some have been quite strict about it, especially in the British and Australian tradition. It's easy to forget that the ban on Sunday trading, which came from Christian ideas about the Sabbath, was only formally lifted in Australia and the UK in the 1990s. Other Christians, especially in Europe, have seen the regular Sabbath rest more as a divine symbol and gift than a moral obligation. John Calvin, for example, the great 16th century French Protestant reformer, argued that the Sabbath is first a picture of salvation, tick, second an opportunity for people to go to church, that was Constantine's idea, and third, he said, the Sabbath is proof that God wants to, quote, Give a day of rest to servants and those who are under the authority of others in order that they should have some respite from toil. In other words, bosses might not necessarily have an obligation to take a day off, but they better give those who work for them a chance to rest. I think Calvin was right, theologically. I don't think we're obliged to take a day off every week. But I also think our society is diminished by not having a shared civic day of rest. Either way, one thing is clear to me as I reflect on the teaching of Jesus and the wider New Testament. Rest from earthly toil is sacred. And because it's sacred, it's a potent sign of the heavenly rest God offers each one of us. You can press play now. Most workers listening will love this. <laughs> um, but how do we convince the bosses and governments of the business of rest Um and are there examples that you know of where governments and bosses are elevating rest? Mm -hmm. um, I think that the that there are you know innumerable long-term studies that show the value of rest for sort of the public purse in terms of you know lower spending on public health or sort of lower you know sort of um, better health better health outcomes for people toward the ends of their lives. So you could justify it economically that way. Now, I think that the, you know, I would also point to the fact that there are a number of companies, some of them quite large now, that have moved, that have actually shortened their working hours for all of their employees, right? Moving to six hour days or to four day weeks without cutting salaries, and without sacrificing productivity or profitability. The government of Iceland actually has done this for their entire public sector, about 15% of their workforce. And you know, it's not just 
the you know sort of senior ministers or sort of you know accountants and number crunchers who are doing this it's also nurses on the night shift or firefighters and they are reporting that you know the results in terms of improvements in work-life balance happiness performance on the job all of these are up I was on a trip to South Korea a few years ago, where the tradition of all work, no rest looms pretty large. It starts young. Many students go to evening as well as day classes, run either by the school or by one of 25,000 hagwons. These are private out-of-hours institutions designed to give students an edge. 14-hour school days is the norm for many Koreans. I was delighted to be at a conference in Korea for Christian teachers from around Asia. Since the 1970s, Christianity in Korea has grown exponentially, with almost a third of the country now claiming to be Christian. I went to one Christian school in Seoul where the leaders refused to offer evening lessons and strongly urged students and their parents not to attend the Hagwons. It was quite a challenge to the surrounding culture where the Confucian work ethic had reigned for centuries. And so it was also a potential risk to the competitive advantage of the school. But I was thrilled to learn that a few years into this innovation, once people got used to the idea, this particular school had become one of the leading academic institutions in the whole region, partly by not working so hard. Some might say that uh, a focus on rest is just part of the decadence of a materialistic Western modern society um, related to our obsession with comfort and our aversion to suffering. Uh, Is it really just a middle class notion? I would, you know, I would say that perhaps it is a middle class notion, but the importance of you know the importance of serious rest the importance of leisure of hobbies of time to reflect and sort of you know to and time in which you can you know ponder the big mysteries and develop as a person there is a deep history of respect for rest throughout human history and i think part of what i'm trying to do with this book is to reconnect people to it to update it a little bit but to say that This may sound like sort of old stuff, but it's really old wisdom. Rabbi Elton, of course, needs no convincing of the benefits of rest. And he points to a gain greater than mere productivity. So how would you um, pinpoint the importance of rest within Jewish life? We rest to imitate God. And imitatio Dei is one of the central principles of Judaism. So just like God rested, we rest also. And that is a gateway into all the other ways in which we imitate God. God is merciful, so we are merciful. God is compassionate, so we are compassionate. God is just, so we are just. And it's also very important because it demonstrates a weekly uh, opportunity to rededicate ourselves to our faith practice. The fact that one day in seven is set aside for uh, really separation, at least becoming semi-detached from the rest of the world and concentrating almost overwhelmingly on religious obligations and religious ideas, that's a weekly recommitment to being part of this this faith, part of this people. Mm. 
What, what do you think our society um, misses out on by no longer having any rest? I mean, when I was a child, in fact, shops all shut pretty much at lunchtime on a Saturday. Um, and then Sunday there was no trading. Um, now, there's, you know, we're open all the time. Well, you know, as you, as you reflect on the big wide world, what do you think we miss? We have no time to reflect. Uh, we're constantly going. Mm. If you're always going and moving, then when do you think about where you are and where you want to be? You're too caught up in the activity to reflect on whether that activity is, is valuable or, or actually is perhaps harmful. I know there are suggestions about productivity levels could be higher with less work, um, but also the whole direction of one's life can be different if you have a chance once a week to stop and say, do I need to be doing this? Would it be better if I did something else instead? When I resume on, on a Sunday, am I going to resume in the same way as I was on a Friday, or am I going to take this pause to, to change my direction? Busyness culture is everywhere, and we applaud and reward it. The typical response to the question, how are you going, seems to be busy. <laughs> and then everyone goes, hmm, tell me about it. I reckon the creator winces every time we do it. Winces not just at the busyness itself, but at the way we seem to prize busyness as a virtue. But it's not a virtue. Busyness can be the enemy of excellence. It can cripple productivity, creativity, and spirituality, just as rest can nourish all these things. I remember one season in my own life and work when I felt all this firsthand. It was the late 90s, early 2000s. I was working half-time for one church in Sydney and half-time as a consultant for 65 churches in the north of Sydney. I worked full days and I was out five nights a week doing seminars. And on top of all that, I was chipping away at my doctorate in the wee hours of each morning. Now, of course, plenty of people are doing those kinds of hours. There's nothing particularly remarkable there. But I found the pace detrimental to my health, my family, and my friendships. And you know what? It was a hazard to my Christian faith. Here I was, working hard for God, but secretly, I was resenting lots of it. I dreaded getting up in front of the next audience, doing the next seminar, appearing to be the knowledgeable spiritual one, when I was really just operating in automatic. Space for prayer and reflection really suffered. I felt like a hypocrite, and I suppose I really was one. It took getting a nasty flu and eventually collapsing over the finishing line of my PhD to arrive at a circuit breaker. But I will never forget the lessons of that three years in a sludge factory. Now, this may have particular resonance for my Christian listeners, and perhaps especially for Christian leaders in the audience, but my intended point is broader. If Christian busyness can damage family, health, output, outlook, and even faith, I reckon any kind of busyness can diminish our physical, psychological, and spiritual lives. So let me end our season five, dear listener, by wishing you and your loved ones, and perhaps especially anyone who works for you, Shabbat Shalom. 
the flourishing of rest. See ya. If you like what we're doing, please head to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Go to underceptions.com as well, pick up one of our t-shirts from the store, or click donate. Help us cover the costs of this pod, currently about $3,000 an episode. I really appreciate whatever you can give. While you're there, send us a question, and I'll try and answer it in next season's Q&A episode. Next episode, then... Well, this is our last episode for the year, but we'll be back mid-February with another season about Constantine, transgender, getting old, the origins of the conflict between science and religion, Vikings, and much more. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne, and directed by the exhausting Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Hamwe. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Underception possible. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Underceptions podcast. <laughs>